Amen. How are we doing? Good. Good. It didn't sound like you're as enthused as I am. The Chiefs are in the Super Bowl. I've been waiting 50 years. I'm not 50 years old yet, but I've been waiting that long, so um, it's happening. I'm excited. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and uh, if you didn't know, I'm a Chiefs fan. Uh, Dine and donate uh, Tuesday night if you're available. That would be a, a great way. You can easily just bless the, the folks who are going on the Brazil mission trip over spring break uh, between 5 and 8 there at Culver. So uh, they come out and just eat some delicious custard and burgers and, and whatever. So enjoy and uh, help out the mission team. And uh, we're excited next week, Baptism Sunday. We have one for sure, and we're excited to celebrate uh, that, that one baptism uh, no matter what. But uh, keep praying for us uh, and praying with us that there would be more. And, and if you're interested, it's, it's not too late. We'd be happy to visit with you and talk to you about that, get you ready for next week. Well, <clears throat> there are times in life when uh, circumstances just seem incredibly daunting. Right. It feels like things couldn't possibly get any worse uh, and that nothing seems to be working out the way that you, you hoped that it would. Uh, and going back in time a, a bit for us as a church, that's how some of us, probably particularly those of us in church leadership, were feeling about the beginning of the month of May in 2018 uh, as, a, as a body. At the start of, of May 2018, this was a situation. Redeemer had been uh, gathering for worship for about the previous three years in uh, Fairview United. Methodist Church's building. Uh, they, they were there. They owned the church and uh, they graciously had allowed to part, us to partner with them to share the space. Uh, we met there for three years. They met at nine. We met at 11. But uh, several months before May of 2018, we had been informed that that lease agreement was not going to be eligible to be renewed. And, and so we we're kind of facing the reality of, of we were about to be a church without a home base in May of 2018. Uh, at the end of this month, we, we don't really have a home. Our, our friends at Genesis Church um, had graciously offered to let us meet in their building uh, for the summer months and on Sunday evenings because they didn't have any programming on Sunday evenings during the summer. And, and they let us do that for free. They offered to let us do that for free so we could continue having a little bit more time to continue looking and praying and, and seeking to find a place to gather as a body. Uh, but the situation we were in was, by God's grace, we, we had grown to be a church of about 400 people uh, at that point. And if you know much about spaces in Bloomington, there are not a lot of rentable venues uh, that are really conducive to, to holding and accommodating that many people. In fact, really about the only option we had found rent-wise that we could possibly move into uh, did not have adequate children's classrooms. And we by God's grace, have been blessed with lots of children. And so the classroom situation would have been like, hey, uh, we'll take the preschoolers and we'll put them in that corner and we'll put the uh, elementary kids in this one. And, and like, so you can see that was not not looking great. Uh, we, we explored potential opportunities, maybe purchase a space. Uh, but if you've ever looked for a house in Bloomington, you can imagine uh, how expensive it is to try to find space to move into with 400 of your friends. Uh, there simply weren't any uh, really uh, reasonable options on that front. It was looking pretty bleak at that point. But, but we, we should have still known that God would have something amazing for us. And, and as time after time in the short lifespan of this church over the last, we're going on eight years now, 
God has been so faithful to just blow us away with his provision time and again. And sure enough, by the end of May, we were already beginning to connect with leaders of Bloomington Baptist Church, this space, this place here. Uh, And by mid-July, we were agreeing to adopt Bloomington Baptist Church, to come together as one church, to pay off the remaining mortgage that was on the property with cash that we already had on hand, and to move into a new permanent home here with zero dollars in debt. Uh, We should have had greater faith because that's who God is. He's faithful. And the lesson that was teaching us, which is a lesson we are constantly being taught as God's people, is that our confidence does not come from the circumstances we're facing or from the emotions we're feeling because of those circumstances. Our confidence comes from knowing God for who he is. And this is very much a lesson that we see in Exodus chapters 5 and 6. Far worse than having a lease agreement uh, non-renewed, God's people are enslaved in Egypt. They are under the authority of a brutal tyrant. Uh, They've just heard from Moses and Aaron, though, that God is going to deliver them. He's going to rescue them. He's going to lead them out of Egypt and take them to a land of promise. They've heard this from Moses and Aaron. They've seen signs that confirm uh, that the Lord has spoken these words. They believed. They worshipped. Everything is about to get better, right? Wrong. Wrong. It's about to get worse. But despite the worsening circumstances, God's people still should have had every reason to keep believing and worshiping. Not because of their circumstances and what's, what's happening to them, but because God was making himself known to them. And knowing God for who he is should have given them great confidence. Even more for you and I. And this point in the history of, of God's people The invitation to know God should give us great confidence, no matter what the circumstances are that we're we're facing, what what comes our way. That's what we see in Exodus chapters 5 and 6. We'll be reading today, uh, beginning in Exodus 5 verse 1, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 6 verse 13. We're going to read a big chunk today. So I invite you to turn there and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words." 
So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work. Your daily task each day is when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and asked, Why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, they did not, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you up I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you are faithful. 
that you are sovereign, that you are a God of redeeming love, and that you are with us. God, we pray by your spirit, by your grace, that you open our eyes, open our hearts to see you for who you are. To know that no matter what it is that that we're going through, no matter what it is that we will go through, that you are the Lord. You are God. You are with us. We are your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. As we walk through Exodus chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see three things here today. The superficial realm of circumstances, the supreme reality of who God is, and a simple invitation to know and trust God. First, the, the superficial realm of circumstances. So much of our frustration in life and, and so much of the conflict that we have between us as, as humans comes as a result of unmet, circum, or unmet expectations, right? The result of unmet expectations. Have you seen that to be true in your life? The married folks in the room are like... Amen. (laughs) Definitely. At the end of Exodus 4, Moses and Aaron, they share the words of Yahweh with with God's people uh, that he's going to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. The people believed, the people worshiped. So naturally, they're expecting that God is going to deliver them. They're expecting that this means, right? God's just told us he's going to deliver us. This means things are going to get better. They're going to start getting better immediately but they don't. They get worse. Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh chapter 5. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. The Lord, of course, is God's personal name. We talked about this last week, Yahweh. It's the name Yahweh. Every time you see the Lord in all caps like that, it really is his name, Yahweh. Israelites subbed in Yahweh, or subbed in the Lord, at the word Adonai for Yahweh because they were afraid they were going to use his name in a blasphemous way, so they subbed that in. But everywhere in the Bible where it's all caps like that, it's really Yahweh. That's his name. That's what's supposed to be there. And this is the name that God revealed to Moses in chapter 3. And Pharaoh saying here, who's Yahweh? Never heard of him. Why should I listen to him? Pharaoh is, of course, the supreme leader, right, over Egypt. Someone who, who's not in the habit of, of taking orders or listening to or obeying anything that anyone else has to say. He, he gives orders. People obey his voice. And this is not a question of, who's this Yahweh? Tell me more. I'd like to know more about him. Sounds like an interesting guy. Uh, that's not what he's saying. This is a declaration of defiance. I don't know this Yahweh, and I don't care about him, and I don't intend to listen to him. Pharaoh's question, though, who is the Lord? That question actually, though, sets the agenda for what is going to happen throughout the Exodus. Chapters 5 through 14 are, in fact, really God's response to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? 
And in those chapters, God is going to show who he is as he sends 10 plagues, as the, he takes the life of every firstborn Egyptian, and as he parts the Red Sea to deliver his people. And in these actions, Yahweh is proclaiming, this is who I am. This is what I can do. I am the Lord, the Lord over everyone and everything, even over you, Pharaoh. The reality of this is, is emphasized in the phrase uh, that doesn't appear uh, before Pharaoh asked this question, who is the Lord? But over and over again, from this point forward, beginning in chapter 6, we see it. God's response. Four words. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And that response is a declaration that God rules and reigns over all. He rules over his creation. He rules over humanity. He rules over all history. He rules over governments and authorities. He rules over any so-called other God. And any defiance against him is absolutely futile. But nonetheless, in Exodus 5, Pharaoh, he doesn't know Yahweh. He doesn't know who God is. And so he defiantly refuses to listen to him. But more than simply refusing to listen to God or let the Israel, and, and refusing to let the Israelites go and worship the Lord, Pharaoh sees this request as a rebellion against him, against his own rule and reign over Egypt. And so rather than th things starting to get better, they get worse. They get worse. Pharaoh accuses the Israelites of being idle, being lazy, wanting to get out of their work. And so he makes their work harder. He tells them, you know, we've brought the straw that you need to make the bricks that we demand that you make each day. But guess what? Now you're going to go find that straw for yourself. But we're going to expect you to make the exact same number of bricks as we expected before. Now go get busy doing your work. Demands the same quota. The result is the people cannot keep up. They can't possibly keep up. So their own foremen, Israelites who were appointed to be kind of overseeing uh, the other slaves, are, they're beaten for failing to meet the quota. And Moses, as he comes to Pharaoh in verse 1, what does he say? He says, thus says the Lord. What does Pharaoh do? What does he say? Verse 10, thus says Pharaoh. This is sheer, ruthless, heartless cruelty and defiance. The foremen of the people of Israel, they go to Pharaoh, they plead their case. Like, you, you made this work hard for us. This, this is impossible. And then you beat us for failing to do what is impossible. Why are you doing this? But Pharaoh's response is, you are all just a bunch of lazy whiners. Get back to work. There will be no mercy. You're expected to make the same amount of bricks as before. It's your fault. You deserve to suffer. Instead of things getting better, things are getting much, much more difficult. I mean, Pharaoh's response in Exodus chapter 5 is no surprise, really. I mean, we, we should expect that that's going to be his response. The surprise, though, the disappointment really is in Israel's response. And it points us to a very powerful truth that when you don't know who God is or when you forget who God is, then you will not trust him. When you are uncertain or unable to understand for yourself what it is you're going through and why you're going through it. Or when your expectations of how God should be working and your circumstances don't line up, 
or even when they, even more when they seem at odds with one another, you will not trust, you will not press in to God in faith. Instead, what you will do is you will complain. And that's what the Israelites do when they find Moses and Aaron in verse 21. They say to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. When you forget who God is and you're overwhelmed with hardship and, and suffering, what you do is you complain and you start to blame others and point the finger somewhere else, maybe even at God. Moses himself, he complains to God. Verse 22 and 23 says, it says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. The situation is exposing the reality that it is not just Pharaoh that doesn't know who the Lord is. Israel and Moses don't really know who he is either. And as a result of not knowing God, they don't trust God. And instead, they are ruled by their circumstances. You see this even in the language of the Israelite foreman as they go to to Pharaoh to plead their their cause. Three times, they they refer to themselves in addressing Pharaoh as your servants. Three times. Your servants, Pharaoh. We're your servants. And what's interesting is that the root word in the original language is the same root word for the word worship. Worship. They see themselves as Pharaoh's servants. The Israelites, not for the first or the last time, are facing a question here of who will they really truly serve? Who will they really worship? Will it be God or will it be Pharaoh? What will rule their hearts? What will, what will rule their hearts? Will it be their circumstances or their sovereign God who rules over all? The point that's being made here is even that in the midst of the most difficult circumstances that come your way, the Lord is there. He's there. He's present. He's still sovereign. And he's still working in and through those terrible circumstances to forward and advance his purposes and ultimately his own glory. The circumstances that you face, while they are very real, it's not that they're fake, they are not what is most real. What is most real is God. In relation to who God is, your circumstances are superficial. Like if you know God, if you know who he is, if you trust him, then even in the worst of times, you can still cling to him and have faith, as he says to us in Romans 8, 28, that he will work for good, all things that happen in the lives of God's people, even evil things. He's able to work for good. But if you don't know him, you will constantly find yourself the victim of circumstances, of what's happening to you. So when there's blessing and good times, you'll be excited. You'll be riding high. Everything's great. And when there's suffering and trouble, 
trouble, you'll, you'll be devastated and full of despair. The question for you and me is this. How do you respond when your circumstances don't meet your expectations? How do you react when hard things come your way? Do you complain? Do you blame others? Do you blame God? Do you feel abandoned by God in that moment? It could be that in those circumstances, God is intentionally exposing the true affections of your heart. And that may even be part of his purpose in it. Because the reality is, is if you're only passionate about God when things are working out the way you want them to, when he's blessing you the way you want to be blessed, but when he doesn't, you complain and you criticize God, that exposes that you really love the blessings of Christ more than you actually love Christ himself. And if you only trust him when, when everything's going your way, but you don't trust him when suffering comes, then you don't really trust him. You're putting your hope in what's happening or not happening. But the invitation of God is this. He is so patient. We see his patience throughout this book. The invitation of God is this. When, when your real heart gets exposed by what's happening to you, God invites you to look upon him and see him for who he truly is. And that's what happens as we move into Exodus chapter 6. God is inviting, is inviting us to see the supreme reality of who he is. Chapter 6 begins like this. But God. But God. Two words that we, we see throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. But God that change everything. Change everything. It's, here it's but Yahweh, but the Lord, but Yahweh. And, and those two words are already pointing us to the reality that God has a purpose behind what is happening to his people. Things have gotten worse for the Israelites so that God can reveal himself to his people. So he can reveal himself to the world. He's revealing his name, his character, and his power to them. He's revealing who he is. And repeated throughout God's response to Moses at the beginning, in the middle, in the end, we see this phrase again and again, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Verse 2, verse 6, verse 8. God's response to Moses is, is this, like, this is who I am. This is who I am. I will show you who I am, who I will always be, who I have always been, who I will always be. I am not defined by circumstances, says God. I'm not defined by anything outside of myself. Remember, God in, in Exodus 3 reveals his, his name to Moses. His name is, I am who I am. And Yahweh is the, the shorthand version of that name. I am. A, a name that the definition turns back on itself. God is self-defining. God is not defined by what's happening to you. God is not defined by what you want to attribute to him and say about him. He's defined by himself. He is the Lord, Yahweh. I am who I am. That is who he is. Look at verse 3. 
God says there to, to Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my na- by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, in other words, verse 3 seems to kind of be saying this to us, that when God first appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he did not reveal uh, his name as Yahweh, right? He revealed himself as God Almighty. He revealed himself uh, only maybe with the more generic titles of God that we see uh, in the Old Testament, uh, that God, right? The, the Hebrew word Elo, Elohim, uh, or God Almighty, El Shaddai but that he didn't reveal himself before this moment when he reveals himself to Moses. He had not revealed himself as Yahweh. But the trouble with that understanding is that Yahweh is used in many places in the book of Genesis. So it seems more likely what what we should really understand verse 3 is saying is that that the name Yahweh was known before by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that God is about to give his name a new level of meaning in and through what he's about to do in the Exodus. And in verses 2 through 8, Yahweh is going to reveal three specific aspects of his character, three attributes of who he is, of who he will show himself to be in the Exodus. He is the Lord who keeps his promises. Right? He's faithful. He is the Lord who rules over all. He's absolutely sovereign. And he is the Lord who redeems his people. He is loving and gracious. First, he reveals that he is the Lord who keeps his promises. God made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He made promises to them in that covenant. And he will be faithful to keep and fulfill those promises, all of them. He made a promise to make Abraham into a great nation, to multiply him. He's already been fulfilling that promise. He made a promise to give them a land of promise, the land of Canaan. And he intends to keep that promise. He made a promise that that through Abraham's descendants, he would bless all nations. And he will be faithful to keep all of his promises, to remember his covenant. The Israelites... In the, in the people, in the representation of the foreman in Exodus 5, right? They plead to Pharaoh. They cry out to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh refused to listen. But Yahweh says here in Exodus 6, I've heard your groaning. Again, I've heard your cries. I have remembered my covenant. And we need to be reminded again that this language of remembering when it comes to God remembering his covenant, it's not like, Oh, God was walking along and he just, he spaced. I forgot about all those promises. Thank you for reminding me. Now I'll get back to fulfilling those promises. Now that I've suddenly remembered what I said to Abraham, I kind of just spaced it. That's, that's not how God works. This language of remembering is covenantal language. In the same way that, that as husbands and wives, you remember your covenant to keep yourself only to your spouse not by, oh, I, I forget, I hope I regret. No, it's decided action to be faithful to one another. You take decided action to be faithful to that covenant. You remember it. It's the same thing here. God has not forgotten his promises. He is now taking decided action to advance, advance himself in fulfilling those promises, to keep his promise. It's the same thing we see basically in, in Jeremiah 31, 34, where it says, God will remember our sins no more. That doesn't mean that God is eventually going to like hit his head and have amnesia 
and just forget about everything you ever did. Like, oh, I can't remember your sin. No, it means that God will not act upon your sin. He will remember your sin no more. He will take decided action in his love and mercy to not act upon your sin. If you're in Christ. And so Yahweh is telling Moses that in the Exodus, in his delivering his people out of Egypt, he will show that he is the Lord who keeps his promises. Because that is who he is. And next he reveals that that he is the Lord who rules over all. Verse 6. God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Chapter 5 really is, is the setup for what all, all about of what's about to go down, right? And, and what's about to go down is this, is a showdown, right? Between Yahweh and Pharaoh. They're going to get in the octagon and there's going to be a throwdown, right? Yahweh and Pharaoh, between the one true God and the false gods of Egypt, that's about to go down. Spoiler, Yahweh wins. He wins. It's not even close. God will stretch out his arm. Like you reach out for a cup of coffee and the most powerful ruler the world has ever known to this point will be crushed. God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. And he stretches out his arm to accomplish whatever it is that he wills to accomplish. Yahweh's acts of judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt are mighty. They're going to be mighty displays. And we're going to see his power his sovereignty in the Exodus. And he, because he is the Lord who rules over all. Because that is who he is. And lastly, he reveals that he's the Lord who redeems his people. Verse 6 here is one of the first times we find this word redeem in the Bible. And, and especially in the Old Testament, the word redeem often refers to the act of restoring rights of a disadvantaged family member by the payment of some price or ransom. Uh, redeem. We went to grammar school, right? That's a verb. We understand it's a verb. A verb has a subject. The subject of the verb in this sentence here is a redeemer. A redeemer will redeem Israel will redeem his people. It's the same language that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer, of course, is a relative who had a a responsibility for redeeming an enslaved relative to paying the price, ransoming them from that slavery, or avenging a murdered relative, or, or providing an heir for a deceased relative. They were a close relative that acted as an avenger, a protector, and a provider, even if that involved personal loss on their own account. Perhaps uh, the most vivid, memorable account of a kinsman redeemer we know in the Old Testament is in the story of Ruth, right? Where we see Boaz, big bad Boaz, right? Kinsman redeemer who acts in that way to, to step in to care for and redeem Ruth and Naomi. He marries Ruth. He provides the family with an heir. He protects them, provides for them in what could have been an absolutely devastating, destitute, dangerous situation. 
already in the book of Exodus, God has called Israel his firstborn son, which means God has said, I'm your father. He's revealing himself as Israel's father, a kinsman. And here Yahweh says he will serve as Israel's kinsman redeemer. He will avenge. He will redeem them out of slavery. He will be their protector provider, even when that involves personal loss. But Yahweh says that this redemption involves more than simply freeing Israel from slavery. It involves something more. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God's intention is to lead Israel out to draw them in. To draw them in. He's going to redeem Israel to be his people. The Exodus is a story of redemption from Egypt for life in the presence of God. Life where where God dwells with his people and, and they dwell with him and there's relationship, there's connection. They're his people, he's their God. And this is the the first time that we see this phrase in the Bible. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. But this language will recur again and again as you make your way through the rest of the story. God's story, the Bible, right? Going forward, it's a refrain that keeps repeating throughout until we even come to the very last book of the Bible in the New Testament and the book of Revelation and in the next to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, where it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In fact, the whole Bible is really the story of God's desire to have a people for himself. It's the story of him redeeming that people, to be his people, and for him to be their God, to live together, ultimately in the new earth that he will remake, where there will be no more sin, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more hard circumstances, there will be no more death. There will be, as the song says, a song that we sing here sometimes says, a time when we will simply feast and weep no more. There will be joy and glory unending. He is the Lord who redeems. He is the gracious Lord who loves his people because that is who he is. That is who he is. And in the Exodus, God is revealing more and more of the reality of, of who he is. He is faithful no matter what is happening to you. He is faithful and he keeps his promises. He is sovereign. No matter what, he he is still ruling and reigning over everything. Nothing will undo what God wills to happen. It will happen. He's our redeemer. He loves and he will be faithful to rescue his people in his perfect timing. Not always in ours, but in his And in revealing and pointing these aspects of his character, we find a simple invitation to know and trust God. 
Yahweh, he tells Moses, this is who I am. I am the Lord. This is who I am. I will do what I said I will do. I will deliver and redeem Israel. I will keep my promise to Abraham and give them the land of Canaan. Will you consider who I am? And will you trust me? That's the invitation. That's what God is saying here to Moses. That's what he's saying to us. And this is the initial response of Israel. Verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The people of Israel are so distraught because of their circumstances. They're so overwhelmed by what they're facing that they don't listen to Moses. They, they can't, they get, they're blinded by what is going on right in front of their faces that they cannot see past it to see the reality of who God is. And then God tells Moses, again, go to Pharaoh. And this is Moses' response. If the people won't listen to me, why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? It's an invitation. God is extending an invitation to know him and to trust him. And to be fair to the Israelites and to Moses, we should remember that in Exodus chapters 5 and 6, the Exodus has not happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And, you know, in the plagues that are about to happen and in the parting of the Red Sea, they will get an even clearer picture of who God is. They will see in that his faithfulness, his sovereign power, his redeeming love. You'll see it, they'll see it in action right before their eyes. But at this point, they haven't seen that yet. Now, if we're honest about ourselves, though, we have even more access to know who God is and even more reason to trust him. For we live not only on the other side of the Exodus, but we live on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb. In Jesus, we see the ultimate revelation of who God is. I mean, he comes in John 8, 58, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. That's Jesus saying, I am the Lord. This is who I am. It's a very plain declaration that he is God. And in Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God to all of his promises. He comes as the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. Through Abraham, he's going to bless all nations. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He comes as the fulfillment of the promise that comes even before that. In Genesis chapter 3.15, at the fall, where God says, through the woman will come one who will crush Satan's head. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus shows God's sovereign rule over all. When Jesus comes in his ministry, what does he do? He heals people of their diseases. He casts out demons. He raises Lazarus from the dead with, with mere words. And ultimately, he displays his sovereignty as the creator and sustainer of all things in his own resurrection. And Jesus comes as the ultimate redeemer who, who rescues his people from slavery to sin and death at the cost of his own death on the cross. He, he displays his great love. He displays his great love in laying down his life for us, shedding his blood 
to pay our debt in order to make us his people. Jesus shows us who God is. But what happens for you, for me? What happens when circumstances in your life get really, really difficult? You know, maybe you're in the room and, and you've just recently become a Christian. You're a brand new believer. And you thought, ah, I, I trusted Christ. Life is going to be easy now. And it's gotten harder. Or maybe, maybe you've had all these big plans and dreams and hopes for your life. And to this point in time, they remain big plans, big dreams, and big hopes that are not being realized. Or perhaps suffering has come. Tragedy has visited you. Struggle. Even on this side of the cross in the empty tomb, it can be so easy to get overwhelmed with the circumstances in our lives. And it's easy in that moment to be complaining like Moses and the Israelites. And often that is what we do. We complain, we blame, blame other people, we blame God. But I want you to hear this. In that moment, when your heart is exposed, that you're overwhelmed with your circumstances and you're not responding as you should, the invitation is not this. It is not, well, you better get it together, right? You, you better do some positive thinking. Get a different perspective. You better, uh, you better muster up some more willpower to overcome your circumstances. You better build up some more trust within you. That is not what God says to Moses, and that is not what he says to you. No, what he says to Moses is this. This is who I am. This is who I am. And this is what I am about to do. I am the Lord. But he says something even better to you. He says, this is who I am. And this is what I have done. I am the Lord. When circumstances of your life reveal that you're not trusting God, Jesus invites you to look at his cross. To look upon the cross. Where more than anywhere else we see the truth that God is able to work incredible good out of evil. Look to the cross and see God's faithfulness to all of his promises. See that in Jesus, all of God's promises find their yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Look to the cross and, and see God's sovereignty on display. Acts 4.28 tells us that the cross was God's sovereign plan to redeem his people from before the beginning. The cross was not some obstacle that suddenly popped up on God's radar that he had to deal with and overcome. No, it was his plan from before the beginning to redeem a people for himself. That you would be his people. That he would come in your place and live for you and die for you the death that you deserve. It displays his absolute sovereignty. Look to the cross and see the Lord Jesus who redeems his people from death to life. In the cross you see the love of God. 
1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to breathe a propitiation for our sins. And that's a big word that simply means this. That God decided to send himself in, in the person and work of the son to take the wrath of God that was meant for you and your sin, to take it and absorb all of it on your behalf so that he might give you grace, he might give you forgiveness, he might give you mercy and favor, and he might invite you all the way in to be his people. In Exodus 6, 6, God said that he would redeem Israel with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And we see the ultimate fulfillment of that promise at the cross of Christ, where the very arms of God are, are outstretched before us. And there was the ultimate act of judgment. But the judgment didn't fall on the enemies of God. The judgment fell on God himself in the person of his son. Jesus died there, suffering your judgment in your place that he might redeem you. When life gets hard, and it gets hard, maybe it's not for you right now, but, but it gets hard. And when it does, and you're unsure, what could God possibly be doing in this? What good is he intending to work out of this? When you're wondering if he's present or if he cares at all, when you're struggling to trust him, when you're struggling to obey him, look to the cross and see God for who he is. See his love for you. Friends, what you really need is not better circumstances. Because let's be honest, circumstances are always changing. That's a roller coaster that you'd never get off of. They're up and down. What you really need is to know God. If you're not a Christian, you need to know Jesus. And I'll be straight with you. I'm not going to peddle you some false gospel that tells you if you have Jesus, everything's going to come together for you. It might not. In fact, Jesus says you will have trouble with him. Life isn't automatically going to be great and better forever because of Jesus. But what you need most is not an easy life. What you need most is a redeemed life. A life free from God's judgment for your sin is just judgment for your sin that apart from Christ you stand under and it will fall on you. A life free from slavery to sin and death where you cannot escape. Slavery to yourself. A life, a hard life knowing Jesus is far better than an easy life apart from him. Far better. If you're a believer in Christ, you need to know Jesus. How do you know him? You look to the cross. You keep looking to the cross. Well, how do you do that? You read his word. You open it. You read it for yourself. God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush, he reveals himself to us much more clearly, much more powerfully in his word. He speaks to us in his word, the Bible. 
You have the very words of God at your fingertips. Why would you not read them? God tells us we, we have an enemy, Satan, who hates us. He hates you. He would love nothing more than to use the circumstances of your life to convince you that, that God's not real. God's not good. He doesn't care about you. He's forgotten about you. You're going to go through life without listening to God and what he has to say to you? Think you can handle that on your own? When God tells us this, this is, he, in, in Ephesians, Paul says, this is the sword. You have an enemy, and a, here's the sword. But you're not going to carry it? You're not going to use it? We have to be in his word. And not just on Sundays when we gather together and we read together and we hear the word proclaimed. Not just on a community group night where we gather to study the word. Those things are good. And we, we need those things. But we need to open it for ourselves to see in the pages of God's word who he is. He reveals himself to us. He speaks to us. He shows us in the pages of his scripture that he is faithful to his promises as you read them and you see the fulfillment again and again and again. He shows us in the pages of scriptures that he is absolutely sovereign, that he is in control. He's ruling and reigning. Even when things look impossibly bleak. He's still God ruling over all. He shows us in the pages of Scripture His redeeming love. Most notably in the cross of Christ. You need to know Him. You need to trust Him. Therefore, you need to be in the Word. You need to read His Word so you can see Him for who He is. So you can have hope and life, and peace, knowing that he will always be your God, and you will always be his people. You cannot hear that enough. You cannot hear that enough. The Lord's Supper gives us a wonderful opportunity each week to, to look at the cross, and to see God for who he is, to see his faithfulness, to see his sovereignty, to see his redeeming love for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In in Christ's body that was broken and in his blood that was shed to pay for our sins, to redeem us, to be his people. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it after giving thanks. And, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we take the bread and the cup, we look to the cross, and we see Jesus for who he is. He is the Lord, and he is with us. Believers, you're invited to come sharing this meal, uh, to tear off a piece of the bread, to dip in the cup. We offer juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. If you're not a believer in Christ, I'll, I'll be honest with you, this, is, this meal is not for you, but there's a better invitation an invitation to something better than, than bread and wine. An invitation to take Christ in faith. To look at his cross. To see who he is. To see what he's done for you. And respond by taking him. Trusting him. 
knowing him. There will be pastors and prayer responders here in the back of the room. We'd love to visit with you, love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. Let's continue to worship and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us in it. Thank you that you are a God who is faithful to all your promises. That you are a God who rules and reigns over all. That there is no higher authority. That every authority bows before you. We thank you that you are a God of redeeming love. A God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Gracious, merciful. By your spirit, by your grace, would you help us to see you? Would you help us to see you, Jesus, for who you are? Would you help us to trust you and cling to you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.